Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jin. Welcome to Marginalia Pod. Where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurungai and Daru people, traditional custodians of the land where I'm recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tangata Finua of Tufanganuyatara where I'm recording today. Well, it's been a huge week. <gasps> it has! This was the first week that we published. Um, I realized that we've been doing this for six months, but it's a big week for us. So we're just going to be excited about it. Yeah. And that's actually my moment of wonder is the fact that we did this podcast and we actually put it out into the world. Yay. And despite my minor technological freak out as I was trying to publish it and worrying about doing everything and doing all the bits and being like, oh, gosh, is this going to work on Apple? I don't understand what is happening. This is so stressful. <laughs> but we did it. And that's amazing. Our friends are listening to it and that's enough. (laughs) I just want to say I am so glad that you did the publishing because I was very worried about it. And I'm also really thankful for you being the kind of person who's like, no, we're just going to do the scary thing because I have so many things in my life where I'm like, yes, I'm 95% of the way done with this. And then it just never gets finished because I'm too scared of taking the final step. So thanks for being brave. Well, thank you for starting it, because I am often full of good ideas, but I never start it. So I feel like we are like the perfect combo <laughs> where you're like I start organizing things. and getting it done. And yeah. you finish them. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, we're doing it then. If you've started it, we're doing it. This is good. I don't like letting people down. So um, having someone else like push me to do things and be responsible is really good for me. So thank you. Yeah. And I feel like the hard work's done now. Like all the stuff is set up and everything seems to be working. So yeah. And we have listeners, like at least three of them that I can think of. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hello, everyone out there. We love you. Yeah, we do. Thanks for listening to us, even though we just enjoy talking to each other as well. So <laughs> I know if no one listened to us ever, that would even kind of be more ideal in some ways. We could just be ourselves and not have to think about it. <laughs> Classic introverts being like, don't listen to me, but I've got things to say, but don't listen to me. Exactly. If we could just anonymously publish everything. Um, what was your moment of wonder this week? So I had a very busy week. Um, We both did. And I think my moment of wonder was they had pushed back the Mother's Day thing at my son's school because we had a little baby outbreak when old mate tried to get his barbecue. So so we had a 48 hour (laughs) lockdown. So we had to move it all back a week. So I went to that and um, my son got to give me a rose. Cute. Look at it. It's beautiful. Isn't it pretty? It's very pink. He got to choose it for me and give it to me. And he also um, did some really great singing. And the whole time I was sitting next to him in his little classroom and he was so chuffed to have me there. It just It was nice to like go and see how he was doing and also know that he was just really happy. Like I know that when I have teenagers, they're going to be like, oh, mom, go away. So I'm really looking like I love all of these little moments where they're like, yay, you're here. It's really nice. I would also be happy to see you. Yes, come visit. I will. Come on, travel bubble. Um, well, that's lovely. I'm glad you got to have your moment despite barbecue, man. Um, and congratulations on running your race. Mm. I think that deserves to be said because you, you did a really good job. Yep, I ran a race this weekend and it was lovely. And we got to go to the Hawks Bay and have a little weekend away. And it was delightful weather there. So once the race was run, you know, Saturday morning, it was like, great. Now that's over. It's no longer hanging over my head. And I get to have mm. a fun time. So I did with my friends and it was good. And got home Yay. about two hours ago and we're straight into potting. So... <laughs> 
Dedication. Nice. I was like, no stopping, guys, because I was driving. I'm like, we're not stopping on the way back to Wellington. It's just foot down. We're getting there as quickly as possible. (laughs) You're fanging it. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yes, as always. Okay, well, this week we read the chapters 28 to 34 through the theme of dreams. So did you have a story you wanted to share with us about dreams? Uh, Kind of. Uh, It's more of a confession. Mm. Okay, I'll just get right into it. So for all of my life, I've been a really vivid dreamer. I can remember my dreams from when I was little. I think they're the most interesting things. I realize that it's like bad form to talk about your dreams, but I really love like hearing other people's dreams and telling other people my dreams because they're always like wild. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I know that there are kind of two meanings to dreams, like literally the hallucinations that happen while we're asleep and also like my hopes and aspirations. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to my husband about this this morning and I said, well, what do you think about like what what do you think when I say dream? And he said something that I really loved and I wrote it down. The difference between a dream and a goal is a plan. Oh, okay, Coming through with the wisdom. (laughs) Yeah. He's really good at just distilling things down like that. And I think part of the reason I don't think of myself as a dreamer is because I'm a planner. So I like to have, as you know, a plan written out. Mm. and color coded and like with (laughs) dates on it ready to go so I don't often have the space in my life for dreams that are like those like oh I have a dream to become you know a teacher something like never was my thing I just start doing it or I go no not for me and I let it go but like the ones that you have when you're asleep like daydreams and Mm. sleep dreams like I love those kind of dreams because they give me something that I don't normally get an opportunity to do or to have while I'm awake and in charge Mm. of my life which is to sort of have things happen to me without consequences right yeah yeah look I don't want to really admit this because I know that a very famous author of a very famous YA series also had this happen to her but like 95% of the stories that I have written have come from like a moment in a dream oh cool I have this intense emotional vignette and I wake up and I'm like I have to write it down but the problem is, is you like something is lost in translation. So I still end up having to do the work where like mm. I sit here, I have this emotional theme and I have to write an entire story around it. Like I have to build the scaffold and then the building to make this work. And I think the important thing is to remember like dreams, whether they're nighttime sleep hallucinations or like a goal that is kind of formless, they're just really a place. They're somewhere for you to start. They're not in and of themselves enough. And I don't know, I think I feel very lucky that I'm a vivid dreamer, but it isn't enough on its own. You have to then do something with it. But sometimes it's still nice to just experience it. I love that. Oh, thanks for sharing. I love the idea of a dream as like a jumping off point or as like a trigger mm. for something. You know, it's like the, the catalyst you need to do something. It's the, the spurring yeah. into action. I, I think that's really powerful. There's definitely something there. Yeah, literally all of my major stories, including the one I'm working on now, there was a dream for it. And it was like, oh, I have to write this particular scene. And then I was like, great, I have to justify this scene now. So I just love that because it kind of ties into what we were saying before, how you were like, I was saying you were very good at planning and getting things done and getting things started. Whereas I'm better at finishing because I'm always like, oh, yeah, that'd be nice to do. But so I'm good at the dreaming, but not at the Mm. goal setting, whereas you're good at the goal setting. Yeah. Yeah, I don't so much as dream, like my ideas don't seem to come from dream so much as like I do a lot of my plotting during dreams so when I'm falling asleep I will set it up in my head I'll be like this is my characters doing things and then that's how I drift to sleep and then sometimes that'll Mm. play out in my dream sometimes it won't but it's like I can sort of like set it up as a little thing and then I'll when I wake up I'm like okay I saw how that was gonna go it's like I can have this little processing thing going on in the background that's so good because when I do that like I forget all of the brilliant things I'm thinking of when I'm sleeping oh I love that no that was great thank you (laughs) Oh, thank you. 
Well, this week was very hectic reading. I felt like it was a lot. So I will summarize the chapters and then we can get stuck in. Thanks. Um, so Sarai shares the news of the flying machines with the Godspawn. Minya reveals her army of ghosts. Finding herself an uncomfortable realization about the nature of Minya's talent, Sarai retreats to Laszlo's lovely dreams of wheat. Minya is trapped by the trauma of what happened the day the gods were slain. Laszlo and the rest of the guests learn their way around Weep and begin to plan a way to get up and into the Citadel. Laszlo offers to help Thion again because Thion needs it, and Thion admits he's struggling with his alchemy. Amazing. Thion just needs to chill. The whole time I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy. He's so committed to being the only one and the best one that he literally doesn't understand that sometimes people are just not jerks. Yeah, he doesn't have any concept of people not being jerks. I have to say, like... I'm sort of low-key obsessed with Thion. <laughs> I'm not sure how this has happened, but probably not unpredictable that it has happened. Okay, I actually really love Thion as well because he's super ambitious and also very, like, dedicated to the science. Yeah, he's so good with the science, but also he's just so... Such a, like, wounded animal walking around not trusting anyone, not knowing mm. where he belongs, who he is even. Like, he just has... There's just a lot going on there, and I'm kind of really into it. I love it. I love that you're into it. I love that he's got his little hooks in you. Yeah. Well, just on that, there's a great line in this where, on page 249, it's when Laszlo is thinking about, you know, who's going to liberate the city and what, what mm. everyone's talents is. And he thinks about Thion, and so he has this train of thought that says, if so, then he might well be Weep's second liberator. What a fine accolade for his legend, Laszlo thought with a tinge of bitterness. Thion Nero, deliverer from shadow. And I love deliverer from shadow because he's the golden godson, and he's like golden and sun-kissed and just glowing. And so now he's also like, oh, he's going to chase away the shadows. Anyway, I loved it. Loved it. That's great. And I think that really ties into the way that Laszlo just views Thion as this person to whom things are given. Mm. He doesn't think that he's undeserving, but he also is aware that Thion gets a lot more because of his privilege. Mm -hmm. And he tries really hard not to resent that because he doesn't want to be that person. But he kind of a little bit... Does. Yeah. Yeah. Which is understandable. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, I just love Laszlo so much in this section. He just shows so much maturity and so much empathy. Yeah. This is the thing I love about fiction is like somebody who was abused as much as that as a kid would probably not be as gentle and as kind and as wonderful. Like, I think that he's an exception. You know what I mean? Mm. He still struggles with his worth, but he has decided to reframe it for himself. And like, he's able to be playful with Ruza in that silly scene where he's like getting new clothes and 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 Ruza's like, oh, you should get a new like wallet or something. And he's like, what? I can't use my fancy little my little baggie. And he's like swinging <laughs> it around like, but it does this and it's so pretty. And Ruza's just like, oh my gosh, this idiot. Like, I love their friendship so much. And I love that Laszlo's kind of gotten to the point where he's comfortable in himself. But also when he's talking to Calixti and she's like, no, what are you talking about? You have an excellent face. Don't apologize for it. And he's like, um, I do have a face. Yeah. Like yeah. he just he doesn't think of himself as more than he is, but he also doesn't give himself any credit where he could. Yeah, and I love that scene with Calixte as well because he's so when she says oh a few people would want to punch you and he's like oh like who and she's like well Thion Nero for once and he's like oh him it's almost like he's forgotten (laughs) and when Thion had taken up so much of his brain space when he was in the library right now Mm. he's got this whole rich life and Thion is just like oh yeah him like he's just another element and I love that I love that journey I love it too I just I feel so proud of Laszlo he's doing so well he's just a delight 
Um, we should talk about the theme because the whole book is called Strange the Dreamer. So obviously we had to include a chapter on dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've already talked about the distinction between dreams that are goals and dreams that are like the things that happen while we're sleeping. Yeah. And like in our reality, our dreams are just the recycling center for our brains or whatever. But in this story, Sarai can enter and influence the dreams of other people. And it makes me sad that no one can do that for her. Yeah. I want her to have better dreams. Yeah, she just has this real horrible time with the dreams. Um, But I thought it was really interesting because there is a line on page 247 when Errol Fane is talking about the Misatham coming down and he says, They might have nurtured our awe into reverence and won themselves true worship, but nurture was not their way. And it just made me think of how Sarai made the same mistake. She could have done that yeah. with her dream powers. She could have gone in and like nurtured weep into this place where people would actually have space for the gods born, but she couldn't. And part of that is because she is wrapped up in Minya's dream of vengeance. Like Minya mm-hmm. is just so in this trauma. She just relives it day after day after day. Yeah. And she has no space except for vengeance. And she's so happy that the opportunity has arrived. Like this is like her dream come true, right? Yeah. It's what is it? Page 226. Now in the face of their despair, she radiated eagerness, Zeal. Mm, it was so mm. utterly wrong that Sarai couldn't even take it in. Like, she's excited to have the opportunity to do Carnage 2. The Godslayer gets it. And the thing I loved about that particular bit as well, I underlined it too, was Zeal, because Zeal implies religious kind of like fervor. Yeah, she's like really into it. And yeah. when Sarai says, You of all people should have had enough Carnage in your life, and she's like, I'll have enough when I've paid it all back, it's just like, mm-hmm. Woo! Minya. Oh, but that scene where she's just sitting alone. Oh, that one and kills she me. just and she just says, you know, they were all that I can carry. They were all that I could carry. Like the guilt that she carries because she couldn't save all the babies is just I cannot even imagine it. I wondered if the fact that she's so frozen in her trauma is why she can't grow. And also maybe it's why her dreams can't change and evolve because as Sarai has grown up and become more empathetic what she wants for herself has gone from this holding pattern of just surviving toward like what do I actually want whereas Minya is just focused on surviving and also paying it back Mm, yeah it's just intense that kid she needs looking after yeah it was such a moving scene that where she was just sitting by herself whispering to herself and I just thought in a way she's a hard character like she is very She's so hard with Sarai and she's so mean to everyone and she's got Mm. this terrible plan and you don't want her to go through with the plan because, you know, it's awful. But then you have this moment where she's she's in this deep trauma and you can see how she got there you know yeah. you can and you can understand in a way this book has just got so much about empathy it's about understanding other people's yeah. realities yes and one of the things i really love especially in this story but having also just re-listened to all of our conversations about scorpio races is when you have characters who do really inexplicably awful things and you can still understand how they got there i think it's the mark of a good writer minya she's a truly abhorrent character but she's also a fantastic character in the sense of you understand everything she does you wouldn't yeah. maybe want to make those choices or live with someone like that but she's like everything makes sense for her everything she's doing makes sense yeah and to feel pity or empathy for someone who's going through that but still being terrible is, it can be really hard but at the end of the day being empathetic and being kind to other people is all we've got yeah absolutely poor minya it wasn't her fault no and it was also not her job to save everyone, but she's sort of taken mm. that onto her, onto herself. The fact that people died, she's like, the fact that the babies died is her fault. She's she's wearing that guilt, even though it's not hers to wear. And that's such a terrible thing to feel guilty for something that you had no control over. 
Yeah, exactly. I have a lot of feelings about Minya, but I'm not very articulate. The mother part of me just wants to be like, this kid needs help. <laughs> like, this child needs, like, some sort of support system. She's taking on way yeah. too much um, and has been for a decade. Do you think there was a bit where Sarai was talking about how she used to be more childlike? Like, they used to play mm -hmm. together. Do you think that her childishness was lost the more ghosts she started keeping? Like, because she had to extend herself outward to keep them and like marshal them and catch them do you think it just left her incapable of sort of connecting like she was just purpose driven from that point or well, maybe it's just because the others grew up mm. right so she had this moment of being childlike and being able to connect with that part of herself because she was reminded of what that was like i guess it depends how long she's been capturing these ghosts because sarai thinks it's only been what four years ten years i think like since they couldn't get into the so since they were about five right so maybe yeah. Oh, that is a long time. Yeah. I can't imagine Minya would have much space in her life for anything other than both staying on alert to capture ghosts mm. and secondly keeping them in line. What struck me was when, you know, Sarai finds out, she makes the connection that the reason her lull stopped working is because Greater Ellen prepares it. And of course, Minya is in control of Greater Ellen. Mm. And Sarai's like, oh, it's so outrageous that Minya would do that because Greater Ellen was like a mother to us. I'm like, but isn't Minya the one giving her a personality? So isn't Minya actually being a mother to you all? Like, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So not only is Minya like running all these ghosts and stuff, but she's also fabricating this mother figure for everyone. Yeah. I think that's where her love goes. It's where it has to go, right? Mm. I was also thinking of how strange it was that Minya is also in charge of the ghost that Ruby's been walking around kissing. Because I'm like, that's got to be an odd feeling. Yeah. I wonder if she sees if she sees through the ghost. You know, like how Sarai sees through the moths. Mm. Does Minya see through the ghost? There's a reference where Sarai says, oh, you know, there's a literal arsenal in here somewhere, mm. but it's blocked off to us because, you know, since Skaithers died, they can't get in. Yeah. But the ghosts can get in. They can walk through walls. So theoretically, Minya could be exploring the whole citadel and knowing what is in the rooms, right? Ooh, I hadn't thought of that. Like, they couldn't get it out, of course, because the ghosts can't make it non-corporeal, but yeah. they can be everywhere. They don't have to go through gaps. Wild. No, I hadn't thought of that. Just makes me feel so sad. Like, this is a little girl who shouldn't have to trap people's souls. It's sad for Minya. It's sad for the people whose souls have been trapped. It's sad for Sarai, who has to see them mm. and be tormented by them, which Minya does to make her feel guilty. Like, oh my gosh. It's just terrible... The parade of ghosts being like, if you don't do it, then we have to do it. Like, oh my gosh. The ghost of a child also. Mm. Like, just, oh gosh, it's so much. It's just too much. It really is. I'm glad we talked about Minya right away because that was the like biggest part. All three times that I read the chapter this week, I was really mad at Ruby and Farrell the whole time. Mm. I was like, this is not how it should be. And I'm mad every time I read this book. So that's fair enough. <laughs> I get so mad because I know that Ruby wants something and I know it's not really Farrell. And I know that Farrell is also kind of just a little bit hopeless and like they've lost the dream that they might be able to survive mm. and live an okay life. And that's why he's like, yeah, all right. And goes along with it. I also hate that he's like, oh, well, you know, if it was going to be anyone, Ruby would be last on the list. And yet he still goes ahead and does mm. it. I'm like, mate, that's not nice. It's not a nice thing. No girl wants that. Well, exactly. And I think at this point, Ruby thinks it's okay. But yeah, I just... I just felt for Sparrow. I know, and Sparrow makes that cake, and Ruby's like, oh, I wish it was a real cake. I'm just like, she's done all this effort to make you this flower cake. At least she played along and, like, pretended to eat it by herself. I thought that was really cute. Yeah, and just the fact that Ruby and Sparrow are actually half-sisters, and they're the only ones who are related, mm. so it almost feels worse that Ruby does this. But I suppose yeah. she doesn't know that Sparrow's kind of, like, in love with Sparrow, but still. Yeah. 
It's still not nice. And also, Farrell admits to having thought about it. What would we do if we had to keep going? And, like, would it make sense to try and have children in order to, like, maybe find someone who can manipulate Mazartham? And, like, it would be Sarai first, then Sparrow, then Ruby. Like, he mm. thought about it. He would actually thought about it in sort of a rational way, which I thought was kind of a mark of character of someone who was like, right, I'm the only guy. I know how this works. What would the ramifications be? Yeah. And speaking of children, I need to talk about the gods and their children situation. Yeah. I have many, many questions. Mm -hmm. Number one, why are they doing this? What is up with this? I don't understand. I mean, I can tell two, you, but it would be better if you just read is the that, sequel. Yeah. <laughs> is that book two? Okay. It okay as long as there's a resolution. So many like, all of the questions are answered. I mean, this is the first of a duology. It all comes good, I promise. It all comes good. So okay, I will do because I was just like, I don't understand why they're doing this. Why are they? Why are they the way that they are, basically? Yeah. And then I was like, and what is with Isagol then having Errol Fane's baby when we learn that you know goddess births are very rare because it takes longer, whatever, whatever. I'm like, why is she doing this? What is the deal with Isagol and Errol Fane? Because that is not simple either. It's about power. So like, she's kind of that person or that like entity that really enjoys the pain of other people. And there's a yeah, line later which I've, yeah, which I've always thought of, which is like she made him love her but didn't take away the hate as well mm. the way it's written is like it's this thing that he's subjected to so Errol Fane the reason he can't go back to be with Azarine is because he still has that goddess love which was forced on him but he's always hated her as well so he feels like he can't do anything purely or from his own like wishing or wanting to me it speaks to the depth of what it's like to be in an abusive relationship with someone like mm. they say that it takes someone an average of seven to ten times to leave an abusive partner because it is so hard to detangle yourself from that you are very connected you are very in something and I think of that with Errol Fane like this is just a really abusive relationship that he's been in that he's still really suffering from mm. but yeah I think the way it works is that the goddesses also have to take turns having babies and it was just Isagul's turn right. to have babies and that's why she went and got Errol okay. Fane because she was like well if I'm gonna have to do this then it's going to be someone extremely broad-shouldered and handsome mm -hmm. and then she just mm -hmm. enjoyed toying with him for three years that's just awful it is this is where knowledge really yeah. came to the forefront was that Laszlo really didn't know and it was Suhaila mm -hmm. who spent all of that time going like oh this is what happened yes I was taken up to the citadel and I was returned a year later the implication was that she had a baby and they cut off her hand mm -hmm. and she doesn't remember it because they all come back without the knowledge of what's happened to them yeah except Errol Fane yeah. and Azarine because they killed Letha before Letha could take their memories away and presumably some other girls because Sarai has that throwaway line which is like she's seen these rooms with the girls who were taken after um, what's-her-face died, Letha. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, I noted that as well. It's the horror of knowing something happened to you but having no memory of what that is. You just know something is terribly wrong. It's kind of like, um, what was that TV show? There's a show that came out a couple of years ago that was exactly about this. It was called I May Destroy You and it's about this woman who goes on a night out and then she wakes up the next morning and she starts having these flashes of things and she's like, oh, something terrible happened to me yeah. and she's trying to piece together what happened. Michaela Cole, right? Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen it yet. I have a really hard time with shows like that so I think I've been like saving it for yeah. a, a good mental health week. It's a lot. It's like, it's amazing but it's horrific, you know? <laughs> also Veronica Mars. yeah. yeah. Not knowing what happened to her, but just knowing that something had happened to her. It's just this interesting kind of horrible knowledge that people in Weep have, both of the carnage and the fact that what they did and also and what happened mm. to them, right? There's this weird thing. And you see that when Errol Fane goes to the council, how people are just so 
viscerally horrified by this knowledge and it's just yeah they can't go back they can't see it they can't go up there Mm. i think next week we actually get to see what happens when they go up there but like the fear of of what they're gonna find errol fane feels like he can't rest until he sees it he needs to see it and i thought laszlo's observation you know he says those words were like they were like seeing a bloody knife you didn't need to have witnessed the stabbing to understand what it meant yeah can we talk about what an absolute amazing person Suhaila is, though? She's so... Oh, she's so awesome. She's just like mom goals, friend goals, auntie goals. She's everything. She is everything. She treats all of his questions like they're allowed to be asked, and she answers them the best that she can, and she charges him for apologizing to train him out of it and says she's happy to retrain him <laughs> into mm, being someone with so more good. pride. I know. She is so good. I just love her so much. I love that she's the knowledge keeper. And I also like as a as a parent as well, you do feel that like grief that you can't prevent your kids from being hurt. She's coping really well. Yeah, it's rough. It's a tough thing to be in. How shocking was it that he didn't know they were married? Such an innocent little little snowflake. Mm. Dear old Laszlo, isn't he? I know, he's the sweetheart. He's like, I've never even seen collarbones. And Calixti's like, I'll show you mine. Ta-da! <laughs> and he just cracks up because it's Calixti. I love that knowledge, both knowledge and dreams as a word, showed up loads of time yeah. in this section. Yeah, me too. It was a lot of that. Um, and of course, Laszlo's dream of wheat is always present in everything. Every page is basically just him being like, this is my dream. But I did love, on page 247, he says, his dream had taken on a new clarity, not merely to see the unseen city, but to help. Yeah. And I think that is so important, because even though he resents Thion, it's because of that clarity that he then goes to check on Thion mm. at the end of our section, because otherwise he would have just, like, not bothered. Yeah. But he, he wants to help. Yeah. Even if it is helping Thion. He does think that Thion is the best chance for Weep. So he's like, right, got to go do the thing. Um, there was definitely the moment where he said, like, he wanted Weep to be delivered more than he cared that it was Thion doing the delivering. Mm, yeah. So good. Like, he gets his priorities right. He is a dream. He's a dream boat. It's, it's official. <laughs> I think it's really interesting that the way the Mazartham began their occupation of Weep was by getting rid of the knowledge. Yeah, I noted that too. The royal yep. palace and the Tizer Cane garrison, like, immediately taking out the military, the government, and the knowledge, and then punishing people for spreading knowledge. It's really... A powerful thing, hey. Mm. It says, you know, um, Errol Fane says, and so our learning was lost. And he goes into it. A chain of knowledge handed down over centuries and a library to shame even your great Zosma gone in a moment. What a way to control people to just immediately take that from mm-hmm. them. It's such a colonist thing. I feel like we see that with colonization across history. Yeah. This is exactly what happens. You take away people's history, their culture, their ability to define themselves, and you basically enslave them. Yeah, absolutely. Knowledge should not be lost. Every time a library is burned, I'm angry. I agree. I just really love libraries. I remember when I first read about the Great Library of Alexandria burning down. I'm like, what an absolute tragedy. What have we lost here? You know, what don't we know? And the other day there was bushfires in Cape Town and the Cape Town University Library was like burning down. And it just (laughs) depresses me so much. Oh man, that sucks. I think not all of it burned down, thankfully, but it was definitely on fire. And it's just, yeah. Man. It actually reminds me kind of of the anxiety that I think Sarai finds in this chapter. It's like that anxiety you you experience when you think what you know something mm. and then you find that that is not actually the truth. Like what you've known is not true or is undone. So Sarai 
has this knowledge she thinks of how her her gift works. Mm. You know, she can go into dreams she's not seen and then Laszlo undoes that and she has this belief in the lull and yeah. how the lull works and then that's undone as well. And then yeah. just that kind of anxiety when your knowledge doesn't hold. When you yeah, you have to reframe everything you know because something essential has changed or the information has changed. Or yeah. the ghost is actually controlled by a tyrannical six year old. And there's like the politics of knowledge there as well, because she's like, I don't want her to know that I know, or does she know that I know? Yeah. Like, are we playing a game? So that idea that when you hold knowledge it's also a power thing you can use. Yeah. And not wanting to give Minya more power because she's already holding so much. Minya is despotic. She wants the people around her to be as traumatized and as hurt and as hardened as she is. So she suggested to Ruby that Ruby could burn people alive, and Ruby was horrified by that. She tried to get mm. Farrell to learn how to strike people with lightning to kill them. And it just, like, his gift doesn't work that way, but she treated it like a moral failing that he couldn't. She wants Sarai mm-hmm. to use her moths to kill people because she's been harnessing ghosts and using them, her extension of her consciousness for so long that it's not a problem for her to do that. She's already planned for yeah. it and thought about it. But to Sarai, she's like, but they're me. And Sarai has this great line there on page 242 where she says, It's not about disgust. God forbid a strong stomach should be all that stands between killing and not. There's decency, Minya. Mercy. Yeah. And those are things that Minya doesn't understand. She doesn't really have knowledge of that. And she can't understand why. Like to her, it's the ultimate betrayal, right? It's like you're choosing other people over us. You should never choose mercy or decency over your own kin, basically. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I know. It was hard to deal with Minya this chapter. Yeah, like I really struggled with her. And then when I saw her in that moment where she was just sitting on the bridge, I was just like, oh, no. I don't want to feel sorry for you. (laughs) I don't either. I get really angry because I think like everybody has the capacity to grow and learn. And like my personal belief is that nobody is beyond the ability to learn and grow and change and become a better human. Like no one is past that. Everybody has the opportunity as long as they're alive. So it's frustrating when a character just like doesn't try. Mm. <laughs> Sarai's nightmares kind of reminded me of Shakespeare a little bit. Because you know Shakespeare loves a dream sequence. Mm-hmm. He's like lots of dreams in Shakespeare. Yeah. And then in Hamlet there's that, that line which is like to die to sleep to sleep perchance to dream for in the sleep of death what dreams may come and I feel like all that Sarai is experiencing her dreams is death it's every death that she could possibly have in various ways like and she's just having these horrible nightmares I had a question like do you think she would have nicer dreams if she hadn't been creating nightmares for people I've wondered this as well because she's created the monsters in her head right like she's mined other people's miseries for so long to create nightmares that as soon as she lost the like shield of hatred she began Mm -hmm. to have nightmares and it was like they were coming to find her yeah and I spent ages trying to dig this out because it reminded me of Proust as I said to you (laughs) I was looking at Proustian dreaming and how Proust interprets dreams because in my honors here at university when I did my critical thinking bit I did it on Proust Swan's Way the first book of the series you know In Search of Lost Time and there's a lot of dreams in Proust Mm. and I love Proust in the way that he's not like Freud and how Freud's dreams are kind of like analytical Proust is more like you become the dream what you dream is what you are and that's like you know what do you see what do you smell that's more important than what does it mean it's what you become that's kind of the Proustian way. Okay, I really love that. I might actually have to read Proust now. I've been resisting for like 20 years, but... I mean, it is the work of a lifetime, I think, reading Proust. From Like, I've only read the first volume, and from what I understand from people who've read all of them, it is, it's a, a lifelong project. Um, but there is a quote later in the novel where it says, When a mind has a tendency toward dreams, it is a mistake to shield it from them, to ration them. 
So long as you divert your mind from its dreams, it will not know them for what they are. You will be the victim of all sorts of appearances because you will not have grasped their true nature. If a little dreaming is dangerous, the cure for it is not to dream less, but to dream more and to dream all the time. One must have a thorough understanding of one's dreams if one is to not to be troubled by them. There is a way of separating one's dreams from one's life, which is so often produces good results, blah, 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 blah. And this is idea that because she doesn't go into her dreams, because she doesn't allow herself to have that communion, that is why they terrorize her. Right. If she was more open to them, if she spent more time with them, then she wouldn't be so attacked by them. I hear that. I have this concept as well, but I call it like inoculation. Oh, it's yeah. where like if you're scared of something, but you do a little bit of it or like you do it enough, it loses its fear. When you're used to it, you get you like you build up a callus emotionally and you can kind of cope mm. with it. And like Soraya, she's just shut herself mm. off, you know, with the lull. She's just gone, no, I'm not engaging with this. I'm not going to learn to deal with it. It's kind of what Ronan does in the Raven Boys in a way, yeah. right? Like he never, he's dreaming. So much dreaming. Mm, my copy of Mr. Impossible shipped this week, so. You need to read it. <laughs> read it first and tell me if it's safe. <laughs> well, you haven't read, have you read um, Call Down the Hawk? You have, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. After you vented for me and told me that it was safe to read. Okay. I just have to make sure that Ronan and Adam are okay right that's yeah that that's the key yeah I can't handle it I can't I can't handle if they're not um I kind of want to talk to you about the difference between knowing and understanding something Hmm. because it's one thing to know about something and it's another to really understand it and I think we see this a couple of times with Laszlo in this section so he knows Errol Fane is the god slayer But it isn't until he sees that mural that he really understands what that means. So he has this moment on page 253 where it says, Shock generally hits like a blow, sudden and unexpected. But in this case, it crept over him slowly as he made sense of the image and remembered what he had until right now forgotten. So two things happen here. He sees it and he realizes that Errolfane actually went in and killed these people. And that is a real thing. But he also remembers Sarai, right? Like he remembers that he had this blue girl in his dream and he thinks he's dreaming of Isagol before he knew what she looked like so he's like how could I dream this if I didn't know she existed which is fascinating to me yeah I love that too do you ever get that where you have deja vu and it reminds you of a dream all the time okay it's not just me and I'm always like (laughs) glitch in the matrix because I am a child of the 90s movie era no yeah and I've always had that as a kid like sometimes I would stop like I'd be walking in the supermarket with my mom and I'd stop and I'd be like I've done this before I've had a dream about this Mm -hmm. before same and she's like yeah that happens sometimes it's fine (laughs) I'm like am I psychic is this it's a very useless psychic power but I was at the supermarket we chose Cheerios (laughs) (laughs) yeah the feeling exists my brain just does what it does I have no I I'm not driving this car. (laughs) I'm just a passenger. (laughs) At best, I'm in the car sometimes. Um, Yeah, and that's kind of Laszlo right now too, right? He's like, (laughs) oh. I thought it was really interesting that he was worried about it being prophetic or like he didn't think of it as being magic. Why Mm. wasn't that his first port of call? I wonder if it's because his dreams, like he feels like that's inviolable in some way or if it just hasn't occurred to him that that could be a possibility. But like he sees this bird flying around in the sky and probably and he's like, magic bird. Yeah, and then he has this whole thing where he's like, oh, you know, they still knee-jerk skepticism from these people even though they've seen everything as magic Mm. and like, oh, I can't believe that these annoying foreigners still don't believe Mm. in magic. And then at the same time, he's like, no explanation for this. 
come on, mate. You literally believe in magic. Yeah, and then there's another moment where there's that kind of understanding and knowing with Thion and spirit. So he knows that Thion needs spirit. That is the key to unlocking what he needs to unlock. And yet it isn't until he goes to see Thion and sees him physically suffering because of he's taking his own spirit that he's actually like, oh, this is actually serious business. Even though this is not something he's already known. He needs to chill out or like maybe just ask someone for help. And I love that Laszlo's just like, oh, it's going to make you basically, it's going to make you (laughs) ugly. And I don't think you can cope with that. He immediately (laughs) gets familiar. And I think this is the trick because like, he's just like, I'm not going to be in awe of this guy anymore because he's being dumb. So I'm just going to treat him like I would Ruza or Calixte and be like, you're dumb. Here's what you can do. It's kind of perfect. It's like the right way to treat him. Mm, I love it. Yeah, me too. I just love it. I really want them to like, like, where's my college roommate au yeah i'm trying to think who it reminds me of it's kind of like john and sherlock in a way you know he's just coming in there being like eh, this is what we're doing mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah i like it and also kind of like another way where you've got that kind of knowing and understanding or knowledge versus dream is where you've got the reality of weep that laszlo is now experiencing versus the weep in his dream that he's still cultivating yeah, yeah he says you know it's not the perfect place he'd imagined as a boy. It's enough to keep a dreamer from idealizing the object of his long fascination. And yet he still idealizes it. He still has that dream. Yeah. And that's where, you know, Sarai finds so much comfort in this idealized dream. It's the weep. It's weep as it should be. It's weep, but safe. I actually wrote that down as like one of the best moments because it just, I loved how much she needed that. Page 273. She perched on his brow and slipped into his dream. It was weep again, his own bright weep that ill deserved the name. But when she saw him at a distance, she didn't follow. She only found a little place to curl up, just as her body was curled up in her room, to breathe in the sweet air and watch the children in their feather cloaks and to feel safe for just a little while. It's so lovely. I think this speaks really to Laszlo's like, ability to cultivate our rich inner life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, Laszlo has this rich inner life because he had such an appalling outer life. Mm. Like, his childhood, everything was just drab and there was no adventure and he didn't have yeah. any excitement. So he just cultivated this magic in his head. Um, on page 274 there's a throwaway line about dream men blowing coloured dust and I was like what is that about? What do we think dream men are and what is this coloured dust that they're blowing? I don't know. It sounds like the festival of colours or something. Yeah. It reminded me kind of like of sand, like a sandman, you know, blowing dust that puts you to sleep Ooh. but it's co- I, no, Or like no. the big friendly like giant dr- with his horn blowing dreams into the windows of children. Yeah. This was a lot. I felt the worst for Laszlo because so much of his innocence was like pure and good and to understand the horrible things that happened to the citizens of Weep. Like it just makes him more determined in a way to help find the solution for them. Mm. And I also like how much he can kind of accept all of the different, like he, I feel like he really loves Errol Fane and each dimension that he gets each thing that he learns about Aerofane, he's e- he's able to add it back into his understanding of him as a man. And like, that's a really lovely way of like getting to know somebody to just fold that in each time. Yeah, absolutely. He's just capable of such thought. Like he can see the complexities of people. He can understand that they're more than just, it's not good and bad. There is gray and he can just, he, he has leaves room for that. He leaves room for nuance. Yeah. In a way that no one else can. Like, even when he's asking Thion, like, did you notice the Mazarthium reacts to skin or skin mm. reacts to it? And Thion's like, no, it doesn't react to anything. Yeah. And he's, like, looking at his hands and they're gray. And he's like, oh, yeah, well, I was touching the Mazarthium as I was walking past. Like, that's just what happens when you touch it, right? And everyone's like, no. No. But no one has <laughs> noticed that yet. Only 
Only Laszlo has noticed. Um, I just wanted to talk about Sarai's... Ah, she's really got this conflict of herself where she is both human and Godspawn, right? And she feels the disappointment. She talks about how she wanted an, an Lilith tattoo. And Gul'dan, mm-hmm. when Gul'dan the master tattooist died, she felt that keen disappointment of never being able to get her own Lilith tattoo because Gul'dan had died. And it was yeah. and just like that loss of a dream that was never going to happen. But she still felt the disappointment of that dovetails in really well yeah. with how she shouldn't want to help the ghosts, but she also can't help wanting to help the ghosts. Yeah. Like, there's so much conflict in that. It's a lot. And there's a lot, there's a bit of that in Sparrow as well, when Sparrow's talking about, when she's in the garden, she's thinking about how she wanted to go and find her mum, because she's like, oh, I can help my mum in the garden, and all these things. And Minya, of course, is like, your mum wouldn't want you, because this terrible thing happened to her, and you're a reminder of that. And just Sparrow's conflict as well, of wanting. Baby Sparrow couldn't understand that her mum wouldn't want her. her. Yeah, of course not. And look, I think it's not fair necessarily to say that that's true. Like, Minya can't know that that's true she can't know that every woman who came down felt like they were relieved of a burden when in fact like i'm sure that if that had happened to me i would want to know what had happened and where this child was like i would not be content with that ambiguity in my life it would haunt me forever yeah it's it's quite a leap to make just because this terrible this this wasn't terrible circumstances and this terrible thing has happened is not necessarily that maybe the loss that women feel who have been returned to weep is not just the fact that it might just be because they don't know what happened to these yeah. kids, right? They don't know. Uh, and we don't know either in a way. Like, you know, they're taken away. Yeah. At this stage, we just know that these kids are taken away. There are, f- you know, five left, that's it. But, like, that's not representative of 200 years of women being taken. Minya actively tries to hide her gift because she knows she's going to be taken away if they find mm-hmm. out what her gift is. I'm like, what is happening to these kids? Yet another question I need answered. Yeah. Hopefully in the second book. It will be answered in the second book, I promise. And it's really good. Just going to have to, like, the two of us do it in a weekend, I think. Yeah. Um. Did you have anything? Uh, did you have uh, something for in-depth marginalia this time? I did. But I just want to do one thing okay. before we get into in-depth yeah, marginalia. Absolutely. And that's on p- page 250. Yeah. This has got nothing to do with our themes. I just really love this mm-hmm. line. And it says, Stolen name, stolen sky, stolen children, stolen years. What had the Miss Arthur been, Laszlo thought, but thieves on an epic scale? I just thought that was amazing. It's true, too. And they're stealing children, and even the children who remain don't know where the other children went. Yeah, it's just wild. The whole thing is wild. Yeah, so my in-depth marginalia this week is on page 240, and it is... But now Sarai thought she might have tried. In her cowardice, she had let the others go on with the simplicity of conviction. They had an enemy. They were an Mm. enemy. The world was carnage. You either suffered it or inflicted it. If she had told them what she saw in the warped memories of weep and what she had felt and heard, the heartbreaking sobbing of fathers who couldn't protect their daughters, the horror of girls returned with blank memories and violated bodies, maybe they would have seen the humans were survivors too. So this is the context of Sarai has seen Minya's ghost army and Minya's hellbent on vengeance and she is like you know this is not the right thing for us to do but Minya can't see it and Minya always has this argument that you know tell that to the other babies every time Sarai's like we shouldn't hate the humans Minya's like tell that to the other babies and this is Sarai being like oh I have hoarded this knowledge I never shared it maybe because she's ashamed of it maybe she didn't want to be seen as being weak and she hoarded this knowledge of what other people what the humans actually went through and that is what has given her her empathy and this is idea of like you've 
it relates to our theme because I think it's knowledge that Sarai had that she didn't share because she was ashamed of it and that knowledge would actually have enabled her to handle this situation better it would have enabled more of them I'm not saying that Minya would necessarily have been on board yeah. but it would have maybe just if this conversation had started 10 years ago rather than yeah. now they'd be in a different position tipping the balance in favour of not fear not reacting to the fear but working toward a better solution yeah and I think what it reminds me of and kind of in real life is just sometimes I think we've all kind of been in this position where you kind of let things go and you're like oh I'm not gonna fight this battle I'll just let this battle go and Mm -hmm. sometimes it's worth just sharing knowledge or having that hard conversation at the start where you force people to see things from someone else's perspective rather than just going "Mm, I'm not gonna get involved yeah because you don't leave room for empathy and I think we see this a lot especially on social media right people getting into fights about random things where it's like you just need to take a walk in someone else's shoes for a moment because it's never that black and white it's never just you're right you're wrong it's yeah there's there's nuance in that as well yeah yeah sorry I know I'm smiling a bit because I'm thinking of what did Caroline do Helen (laughs) Caroline (laughs) careful who your friends are I just think it's so interesting because there's this idea that, you know, it's the simplicity of conviction that really struck stuck out to me. Like they had an enemy. They were an enemy. Yeah. The world was carnage. You either suffered it or inflicted it. And I think we fall into this trap a lot in life where it's one or the other. It's one extreme or the other. And often that is not true. We all experience things in nuanced ways and it's never just one or the other. Yeah. I often say that the most important thing I've learned is like learning to live in the gray spaces where things can simultaneously be true even yeah. if they feel like they're to the exclusion of other things people can care about you and still be hurtful and hmm. you can love someone and it can still be toxic people who are bad for you are not necessarily abusers you know what I mean like there's a lot of yeah. gray ambiguity going on in, in our real lives like it's not all cut and dried and we do have a very like dichotomous approach to life I think we do want to be in one camp or the other I think that's just human nature yeah and one day you might feel really strong belonging to one and the other day you're like oh I know yeah you know it just it changes based on how you're feeling how your day is going how you're where you are at at your life and also how receptive I am to other people and like how much I'm willing to give of myself like it's not that I don't belong it's like how much am I willing to engage in order to belong yeah absolutely And I think, yeah, for me, how we can use this going forward is just to leave a bit more room for for empathy, because that's what this is. It's just being like, I am just going to pause and try and see it from someone else's point of view. And that doesn't make someone right or wrong or good or bad. It's just having room to allow myself to imagine it from someone else. Because, yeah, someone else's point of view. Because Sarai has previously said, you know, she has sympathy for the humans. She has empathy for mm. the humans. That doesn't mean what they did was right. Yeah. Like killing babies was not the not correct the children. thing to do. Never the children. Exactly. But she can still empathize with what they went through. And I think that is the crux of this. Is like, yes, you can acknowledge that someone has done something wrong. Or you can acknowledge that someone is in the yeah. wrong. Whether it's politically or whatever way. And then you can also acknowledge that they have their own trauma and their own baggage that they're bringing to this and I think that is a beneficial thing to always keep in mind when dealing with people and not just go right the wrong black white put people in boxes especially people that's not fair to anyone to be your enemy it's good to remember that they're not just like a cartoon villain but actually somebody who is probably trying their best yeah anyway um what about you what's your in-depth marginalia I think mine's basically the same thing, but I have another one lined up, but you basically just covered everything. 
beautifully that I like I couldn't have said it any better. So I'm going to talk about Laszlo and Calixti because I think that this passage on page 246 really stood out to me. They're talking about how Laszlo has shaved his face and he's still very tired. And he's sort of teasing like, oh, I can't believe you'd suggest I'm not like fresh faced. And she's sort of like, well, but at least you've like, you know, taken all this off. And she waggles to indicate that he's shaved. And she's like, it's good to see your excellent face. And he's like, what are you talking about? And she says, what are you talking about? Sorry, you have an excellent face, she said, examining him. It isn't pretty, but there are other ways for a face to be excellent. Laszlo touched the sharp angle of his nose. I do have a face was about as far as he was willing to go. I think that Laszlo, for all of his experience, doesn't really understand that other people have different preferences. Mm. And I can think of people who are probably like not classically or traditionally beautiful, but because I love them, they are beautiful. What's that Roald Dahl quote? When you can see that someone is kind, the loveliness shines out of their face. Like, and they become beautiful. That's like, that's how I feel about all my friends. All of the things that make them them are so dear to me. Yeah. Um, and I just don't think Laszlo has really thought about that because he's really dismissive of his own looks. Like he doesn't approach that as something that is subjective knowledge and therefore valuable, but rather it's not true enough to him to be true for anyone else. Mm. It makes me think of all the times that I was dismissive about people thinking I was cute. And like when I had my kids... Of course, babies are all babies. Like, they all look like babies. But to me, they're the most beautiful children in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think they're so adorable. And everything about them is amazing. And my son has all of my facial expressions. And he has my scrunched up smile. Like, it is amazing to me, considering he came out looking just like my husband. It's amazing to me how much he looks like me. But I think he is the most beautiful child. And it's made me kind of reassess how much I think about myself as not being pretty or whatever. Because he also thinks I'm beautiful. Mm, Because he loves me so much and has no concept of, like, what attractiveness is. It makes me think, like, what the heck was I worried about all this time? I'm just so beautiful. I'm not saying go and have a kid if you want to feel unconditional love. But it doesn't hurt, right? Like, (laughs) Like, I can never be... A specific body type or whatever and I think Laszlo doesn't really understand this yet either but it doesn't matter because if you have somebody who cares about you then you're going to be beautiful to them no matter what so that's just what I'm thinking about like Calixti already knows Laszlo's worth and thinks he's interesting to look at and because he's dear to her his expressions and his face is dear to her oh I just love that so much and I love like using your son kind of as a mirror to see yourself through that it's just so beautiful it's such a lovely thing To be open to that and receptive to that. Growing up, my mom always had, she was always trying to lose weight. But when I had my kids, I thought like, I don't ever want them to feel the way I felt growing up. I was like, I won't talk about myself in a negative way. And I made that pact. But I didn't realize that by not doing that, it would mean my kids thought that I was the most beautiful person in the room all of the time. Because you are. (laughs) Um, I love that you chose this passage because next to it, I wrote cute love heart. (laughs) I also love that he was like blushing when she was talking about her and her girlfriend. Like, she's magnificent. And Lazo's like, I'm so innocent. Don't corrupt me. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) He's like, even as remote as things such as lovers were to him, he understood the smile and the warm tone of her voice. Heat rose to his cheeks. (laughs) He's so silly. He's ridiculous. Do you have a character you want to spotlight this week? I do have a character, and I don't want to shock you, but it's going to be Thion Nero that I want to (laughs) spotlight this week. My new BFF. 
Um, he's a Slytherin. I get it. Oh, he so is. But it's the claustrophobia of his life. Like he he chooses this work workroom that has no windows, that is high yeah. up in a building. There's a single door that he puts three locks into, and he basically locks himself in there. Doesn't see anyone. Doesn't leave. Takes his meals. Is just so cloistered in there because he is so afraid of being discovered or sharing his secret because he thinks that is a weakness like he can see that will be used against him he'll be exploited whatever whatever and he is incapable of asking for help because he can't foresee a world in which he will be helped he can't see a world where someone will want to help him on page 26 that it's like he says you help me to laszlo and it's like that had been incredible because he's thinking back to when Laszlo had first offered to help him. And he's like, back then it had been incredulity that Laszlo dared believed himself worthy of helping. This was more like incredulity that he should want to. There's just so much going on there. And I think, you know, yeah. for asking for help is a hard thing. It's something that I have struggled with a lot. And I often don't ask for help. And I've been working on that. And so for Thion, I just want to give him the courage to ask for help and to know that that is not weakness and that is not ceding power, that there is power and vulnerability and there's power in asking for help. And I would want that for everyone, anyone listening. It's okay to ask for help. No man is an island, really. And like life is so much better when you share it with people. Yeah, absolutely. And it's okay to wait. This is the other thing I want to say. Like you can wait for the right person to ask for help from. Like you don't have to ask the people that are there now if they're not the right people. Oh, yeah. Be vulnerable, but be vulnerable in a way that, uh, like yoga, it stretches, but it shouldn't hurt. No, that is a very good point. Absolutely very important. It's not everyone who is, I I don't want to say worthy of helping you, but there is a little bit of that. You have to treat yourself like you're precious. Mm. Guys, give me two minutes, okay? (laughs) Cute. Did you hear that grr? I did. That sounded like me. (laughs) (laughs) Who would you like to spotlight? Um, I think it comes as no surprise that I want to spotlight Minya this week. Mm. Look, I think that there are a lot of people out there who are stuck in trauma that they can't get out of and don't see any way out of except for violence, retribution, hurting people as much as they've been hurt in order to protect something that is very, very deeply buried inside of themselves. I think it's really interesting that we're both choosing people who don't know how to be vulnerable Mm. to spotlight because I think we've both done a lot of work the past few years of like trying to be vulnerable with people in a way that is not (laughs) self-sabotage or to an end but just to form that connection so I just want to say like if you're stuck and if you're thinking that whatever you've done it wasn't enough or if you're living through some sort of horrible trauma like forgive yourself for not being the person that you thought you needed to be absolutely and find a way to to move forward in a good way that's like, I mean, it's hard. It's super hard. Yeah. And don't carry weights that are not yours to carry. I know that's easier said than done, but yeah. often the guilt we carry is not ours to bear. For sure. I worry that Minya sitting in that room by herself in the place that only she can get to saying that they were all that she could carry, that she should have gotten more, that she should have known what to do with her gifts before she had them. Like mm. experience is what gives you that clarity, right? The hindsight is twenty twenty. We don't have to know how things will turn out before they turn out. We have to forgive ourselves for not knowing what to do in the moment, especially a hugely traumatic moment. Absolutely. It's it's okay to just survive it and then figure yourself out afterward. And ask for help doing it. Well, that was super cheery. (laughs) (laughs) On that cheerful topic. um, (laughs) Next week, we'll be reading chapter 35 to 41 through the theme of rumors, which should be interesting. It's all getting very real. I mean, we're more than halfway through. I don't feel ready. I don't feel ready. 
<laughs> I know. I know. Me either. I did. I did want to point out that Dreams is my mother's all-time favorite song, and Rumors is her all-time favorite album. So I kind of love how these two dovetailed. I was like, when was that album released? It was released in 1977, which means my mother was 15, which is like the best time to discover music. Yeah, because it like becomes part of your psyche forever. Yeah. Um, I love that this is the Fleetwood Mac book. Great. (laughs) Great. Love it. Well, thank you so much for your incredible insight. I've really enjoyed talking to you about these sections. I'm so glad that we got to pod this weekend, especially since you were literally running a race yesterday. Like, that's (laughs) amazing to me that you ran a race and then came home and still potted. You're amazing. Well, this is a priority. We'll make it happen. That's right. Priorities are observed, not declared. We observe this. And I like that we observe it. Me too. Well, thank you, as always. Yeah, thank you. I will chat to you next week. Look forward to it. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. Marginalia Pod is written, edited, and produced by us, Gen D and Gen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed it, we'd love if you'd subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. Your support means the world to us. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. Many of the things we've mentioned are in the show notes, or you can find out more about us and the podcast at marginaliapod.com.